On the pitch, England have had an impressive start to their campaign in Qatar. We've beaten Iran 6-2. Off the pitch, though, it's been less glorious as the FA have folded to FIFA's threat against players wearing LGBT wristbands. Of course, as you can imagine, we're going to be talking mainly about the politics of the World Cup on tonight's show. But to get it out of the way, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. I want to know from you, what was your verdict on England's first match? It's not the most fun World Cup ever. And part of it is obviously that Qatar is the host nation. And the other part is that it's just really cold. So I can't enjoy the World Cup in what I feel its natural habitat is, which is a beer garden. So there was a kind of cloud of feeling a little bit bummed out. But I was really happy to see Saka and Rashford on the score sheet because I just sort of thought after everything they went through, After that Euros final where it was Saka, Sancho and Rashford who missed those penalties against Italy and they just had that horrible tidal wave of racist abuse, to see them play with loads of confidence and like joy and spirit, that was, that warmed the old cockles. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you in terms of like the vibes. This is definitely the bad vibes World Cup and I'm kind of worried that we're going to win it and you're like the only time we get to win the World Cup is going to be the one that everyone universally agrees is like the shit bad vibes World Cup. But I suppose, I mean, if we get that far, obviously, like the culture in this country will change, you know, vis-a-vis the competition. People will start to get a bit more excited than they seem now. The start of the World Cup in Qatar has been dominated by political controversy as footballers, fans and broadcasters grapple with how to handle a World Cup in a homophobic autocracy. This is how Gary Lineker opened the BBC's coverage of the competition. It's the most controversial World Cup in history, and a ball hasn't even been kicked. Ever since FIFA chose Qatar back in 2010, the smallest nation to have hosted football's greatest competition has faced some big questions. From accusations of corruption in the bidding process to the treatment of migrant workers who built the stadiums where many lost their lives. Homosexuality is illegal here. Women's rights and freedom of expression are in the spotlight. Also, the decision six years ago to switch the World Cup from summer to winter. Against that backdrop, there's a tournament to be played, one that will be watched and enjoyed around the world. Stick to football, say FIFA. Well, we will, for a couple of minutes at least. Slightly confusing introduction, because I mean, they're definitely going to stick to football for more than a couple of minutes. What I predict is at the start of this competition, they'll be talking about it a bit before the games and by the middle of the competition, they'll be talking, you know, 99% of the time about the football. But anyway, leaving that to one side, not everyone is happy with people sounding off about human rights abuses in Qatar. Over the weekend, FIFA president Gianni Infantino gave an hour-long speech challenging what he saw as the hypocrisy of Qatar's critics. It was all a little bizarre. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Of course, I'm not uh, Qatari, I'm not 
Arab, I'm not African, I'm not gay, I'm not disabled, I'm not really a migrant worker. But I feel like them because I know what it means to be discriminated. As a child at school, I was bullied because I had uh, red hair. We've been assisting on uh, in some places a real lesson of moral, of double moral, I would say. So let's start with the migrant workers, if you allow me. We are told many, many lessons from some Europeans from the Western world. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. I came here six years ago and addressed the matter of um, migrant workers straight on at my very first meeting. How many of these uh, European or Western business companies who earn millions and millions from Qatar or other countries in the region, billions every year, how many of them have addressed migrant workers' rights? None of them. Because any change in the legislation means less profit. Instead of one billion, well, you maybe make only 900 million. But we did, and FIFA generates much, much, much less than any of these companies from Qatar. The World Cup was offered to Qatar 12 years ago. I mean, in that speech, Infantino argued that the current FIFA committee were being blamed for a decision made before their time at the organization, saying this is very unfair, we've been dealing with a difficult situation we inherited. Yet FIFA isn't giving much indication that it has changed. A number of European teams, including England and Wales, had planned for their captains to wear a One Love armband in support of LGBT rights. They were forced to change plans, though, when FIFA announced anyone wearing the armband would get an automatic yellow card. Um, Ash, we're two days into the World Cup. Politics is dominating at the moment. I think at some point it will move to football dominating. But what do you make of the controversies so far? I mean, I think you've got to go back to the history of FIFA to realise that it's been decades since you could say that the World Cup has been simply about the love of the game and different countries coming together to enjoy a sport which is beloved by billions of people. You know, in 1978, you have the World Cup being hosted by Argentina, which was under a fascist dictatorship at the time. Of course, the last World Cup was held in Russia. And this World Cup, a product of a bidding process, which is widely believed to have been uh, corrupt, a decision which was swayed by bribery, is in many ways a continuation of where the game has been going for a really, really long time, which is football, which is totally divorced from the fans, from the values of fairness that it's supposed to embody, from any sense of being rooted in the culture at a grassroots level of the host nation. And now it's just chasing money. FIFA isn't unique in being an organization that 
does that. I mean, in a way, Infantino in that totally bizarre speech was right when he said, well, what about all the other companies operating in this region? They're not pushing for increased migrant rights. But FIFA, in following those other huge corporations and indeed, you know, sovereign states who who benefit from the the oil sales from the region or the fact that many of these countries buy the arms that we sell them. You know, FIFA can't say, okay, well, we're just doing what everyone else is doing. Because the nature of the World Cup is that it's one of the biggest media events on the planet, if not perhaps the biggest. And what they could very easily do is go, okay, well, we are going to let you host this on the condition of changing your laws around migrant labor and that we will not allow um, any of the companies involved in the construction of these sites to confiscate the passports of migrant workers. You know, they quite easily could have done that. You know, they could have given a much freer reign to, you know, the national football teams who want to make gestures of solidarity with, with you know, LGBT people, though I do think it's frankly farcical, almost comically spineless for the England team to cave under the threat of yellow cards. Like, oh no, not a sporting punitive measure. How are we supposed to decide between whether gay people are human or, you know, whether or not Harry Kane should have an increased chance of being sent off? This is such a difficult decision for us to make. You know, I think I think that's totally vacuous as well. But I think the point is that Football has been really corrupt for a really long time and we have been corrupted and we have in turn corrupted Gulf states for a really long time. So football isn't isolated as, as a problem, but it does have a position of perhaps visibility, which could you know, result in a, in a form of moral leadership, which hasn't been taken up by FIFA. And also, can I just say the bit about, you know, I know what it's like to be discriminated against because I had red hair and freckles as a child. One, there's something really funny to me about that coming from a bald man to be like, I too have been redheaded in the past. So I know what it's like to be disabled all your life or, you know, an LGBT person all your life. And then the bit which is like, you know, I I feel like a migrant worker and that's, you know, like being bullied at school for having red hair. Well, did the rest of the children at school, you know, call you ginger nut and then work you to death in the boiling hot sun in order to build infrastructure for a sporting event and your family never found out what happened to you because your passport and means of communication had been confiscated and they never got any compensation. Because if that did happen at your school, fair point. I think we'd have to say he's allowed to make some comparisons. But I highly doubt that Infantino was worked to death as a child on account of the fact that he lived to this day to give that frankly bizarre speech and just all the money in FIFA and he couldn't have paid for a speechwriter who wasn't on acid. He said he feels like migrant, um, a migrant worker because his parents were migrant workers. They were Italians and moved to Switzerland. It still doesn't stack up. I'm, I'm with you there. Let's talk about a different aspect of the World Cup. We sort of spoken before about the fact that I think whether or not this is a PR success for Qatar will depend a lot on how fans and journalists are treated. 
especially when it comes to you know, the soft power earned by Qatar hosting this World Cup. And the early signs were mixed. So booze was banned. That got some bad press. And at least one camera crew were harassed by the police. I think that was a Danish group of journalists. Some fans, though, are relishing their time in the Gulf state. We've just been having a good time, having a mooch, you know, getting our bearings right. And just the setup spot on, you know. Um, yeah, we've been enjoying ourselves, haven't we, John? Yeah, last night we met one of the Sheikh's sons and he took us back to the palace and he showed us he had lions and everything. They've made us so welcome. And look around you, it doesn't get any better than this. Basically, we were um, obviously on a bit of a hunt for some beers and um, he was like, yeah, yeah, we saw beers, saw beers. So we jumped into the back of his um, Toyota Land Cruiser, ended up at a big palace and uh, we were in the back. He showed us his monkeys, his exotic birds. It was, it was nuts. Me and the boys were on a, a beer mission trying to get beers back to Gaff. And I've only managed to get us back to fucking a naughty one with Nawaf and Abdulaziz. And we've just rocked up. And it's going off. He's got Lambos, apparently. It's mega. It's got a four-year-old lion as well. Mad. I get it. I get it. <laughs> now that experience seems to have sold the idea of, of Qatar to the, the people you saw in that video. So this is the Twitter of the guy you just saw there with the little line. It's called Alex Sullivan. Listen, let's not listen to our bollocks media giving this nation so much shit. They have came from nothing, demonstrated from the opening ceremony. Yes, they done dodgy things, but are the UK and the US not the biggest human rights neglectors? Arabs made us feel so welcome. Respect. And then you've got a, a love heart and a England flag. Ash, what do you make of this? I mean, it's an entertaining video. You mentioned earlier that potentially, you know, it could be staged if you were sort of Qatar's PR team. You could imagine going for this. Would have been slightly hard to organize because you've got to do the sort of talk radio interview. But although I can imagine that being easy enough to do, it's interesting. I suppose if this is genuine, will showing enough Brits, baby tiger cubs, um, make this a PR success for Qatar and should we really believe that what we've seen going on here is what's gone on? I mean, I think that this is a real PR coup for the Qatari state because what it does is that it creates an image of a culture which is exotic and decadent but also really generous and welcoming and I'm sure that individual Qatari families that very much is the case but it is a state which is founded on exploited and indentured labor and it's a little bit like going to Mississippi or Virginia during slave owning times I mean the ratio of foreign workers to Qatari citizens is something like five to one many of those workers of course come from countries like Bangladesh come from Nepal come from Sri Lanka and their rights are non-existent as we've said Thousands of them have died in the process of building the infrastructure necessary for this World Cup. And that is what the luxury of that palace and the menagerie is built on. You know, I, th I think there's been a certain amount of misplaced alarmism about Qatar. And the focus has been, what is the experience going to be like for Westerners who travel there, whether that's people who just want to live their lives the way that they would back home and have access to 
alcohol and, you know, the sexual norms which govern the UK would broadly be respected there, or whether indeed that's LGBT people who want to, you know, be themselves whilst in Qatar. And the thing I've always said is like, I think you might get some individual abuses of power, but there is going to be, I think, a real top-down effort being made by the Qatari government to say, look, don't abuse your power, show people a really good time. Because what that then gives you is a sense of legitimacy, which means that you've got you know, more money coming in, deepening trade ties, financial ties with the rest of the world. You could maybe do a bit of a Dubai and reinvent yourself as a tourist destination for Westerners. And that kind of goodwill and good feeling and sense of, oh, this is an all right country. Like, you know, yes, culturally it's different, but, you know, they're really nice, really welcoming. It's possible to access a level of luxury here, which is totally alien to us back home. But that creates an awful lot of room to then further those abuses of power, whether that's against migrant labors, whether that's against LGBT people who are living in Qatar, or whether that's in terms of Qatari foreign policy. I mean, you know, Dubai becoming a major tourist destination is happening right at the same time as a joint Saudi-UAE bombardment of Yemen. And I think that part of the reason why we don't see that for the horror that it is, is because, yes, the British state is directly involved. We sell them weapons. We also give military assistance, logistical support to the Saudis and to the UAE, but also because you know, young, beautiful, cool influencers are flitting back and forth. And Dubai is seen as, you know, being like the Miami of the Middle East. And that all helps normalize a really unjust political settlement. And of course, of course, there's there's truth in saying that the UK and the US are the biggest human rights abusers in history. Of course, there's some truth in it. But there's a difference between saying, as nations, our hands are not clean. And we should actually look at the way in which we uphold regimes in other countries, such as, you know, Saudi Arabia, such as United Arab Emirates, whether or the Egyptian government for that matter, and saying, well, our hands aren't clean. So who who are we to say anything? You know, who are we to say anything? Well, the point is, is that we we're human beings. We're capable of wanting better for one another. We're capable of standing in solidarity with people who are at the sharpest end of these regimes. And so like, I get that's a fun video. And those, those guys seem like great fun. I would love to go on a night out with them. But it's really sad to me to see the, like, lad washing of Qatari exploitation of indentured labor. I mean, that's smart if you coined that, lad washing. I mean, that definitely is what was going on in that video. I, I agree with basically all of that. And, you know, up to the point, they also seem like fun guys but yeah i mean tweeting afterwards you know stop being mean to qatar they're really friendly kind of misses the point of of why people are criticizing this world cup we got one bad take for you coming up on the world cup then we're going to move to some other political stories the qatar world cup has generated more political commentary than any previous competition lots of it is valuable for example using the opportunity to shine a light on corruption at fifa and human rights abuses in the host country Some of it, though, strikes me as purely cynical. 
Will Lloyd at the Times fits into that category. He penned this opinion article. Qatar ruins footballers' claims to be activists. The showy social consciences of Southgate's England squad seem to evaporate when a place in the World Cup is at stake. And then he, within the article, it says this. During the pandemic, Marcus Rashford began campaigning for free school lunch programs to have their funding extended. Rashford's message was simple. This is not politics. This is humanity, he tweeted. A template established itself. Every footballer in England had a cause, a burning injustice to slay. Manchester City's Raheem Sterling backed Black Lives Matter. Aston Villa's Tyrone Mings lectured the then Home Secretary Pretty Patel about racism on Twitter. The Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson and Tottenham Hotspur's captain Harry Kane started talking about LGBTQ rights. He goes on. At the World Cup in Qatar, the sentimental narrative ends. The notion that footballers are more than entertainers and that football can change the world for the better is going to its grave. Qatar is a micro-Sharia state with a track record of beating its gay subjects. An unknown number of migrant workers died constructing the stadiums for this tournament, unknown because either the authorities did not bother to count them or has decided not to disclose the number. There is no moral ambiguity here. English footballers' social consciences should stop them from playing in Qatar. Now, I have a number of thoughts about this article. So for one, I mean, the criticism he's making of Qatar are completely legitimate. You know, the way they treat migrant workers, disgusting. The way they treat gay people, despicable. What I can't stand about this is that footballers, I think one of the reasons why footballers are very sort of an interesting group of people in this country is because they're one of the few sectors of public life where working class people and people from ethnic minorities are completely dominant. Very few others. Journalism particularly so. Everyone in journalism, like so many people in journalism went to public school, including this guy. I looked on his LinkedIn. So Will Lloyd went to a very expensive public school. And he thinks he should have the right to talk about political things. But footballers, they should be mere entertainers. And because they have gone to Qatar, you know, this is you know, one of the biggest opportunities in their life because they've taken up one of the biggest opportunities in their life to go to this World Cup. They now cannot talk about Black Lives Matter. They now cannot talk about free school meals. You know, this is it. This is over for them. They've been disqualified as legitimate people to have a political opinions. This guy is writing for the Murdoch Press. So it, this just to me seems like political discourse should remain the preserve of posh people, people who are journalists and people who are MPs. If you are from a different walk of life and you've made some compromises, it's not for you. By the way, this guy has made lots of compromises, right? Murdoch is probably more responsible than anyone else for the climate catastrophe we face because he has mainstreamed the craziest elements of the American Republican Party, right? Always been on the side of the oil barons. Terrible record when it comes to promoting policies which are disastrous for human rights. But he thinks he still gets to give political opinions and Marcus Rashford, because he went to the World Cup, one of the biggest opportunities of his career, no longer, he, he can't talk about free school meals anymore. And this is just something that the right always do. You always hear it with Piers Morgan and Julia Hartley Brewer. It's this attempt to constantly say, you cannot have a political opinion unless you are pure and perfect, but never applying that to themselves. Ash, what do you make of this? So he was pissed off with Will Lloyd as I am. They've always tried to silence, in particular, black athletes from expressing political opinions by saying, well, either you're not informed enough or look, you earn loads of money or look, you're in this country. So, you know, when there was the famous image 
of the two black athletes with their uh, fists held up in a black power salute at the Mexico Olympics. I was like, oh, ho, ho, ho. You complain about the treatment of black people at home, but you're in Mexico, which is, you know, effectively a, a one party authoritarian state. Same with Lewis Hamilton. I mean, Formula One, the Grand Prix calendar is truly like kind of horrible authoritarian despots club med, you know, it's Abu Dhabi, it's uh, Riyadh, it's Jeddah, it's Baku. And they've said, well, all of those things then undermine what Lewis Hamilton has to say about racism. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't. Maybe what that points to is that we have conversations about racism and poverty, which are too contained to the UK. And maybe we don't think about it in terms of how those things interact with a global system of capitalism, uh, white supremacy, or of, you know, the exploitation of people of color the worldwide, you know, fine. But I don't feel that that's the point that this gentleman is making. He's saying, well, because you've done this, we don't have to listen to you on racism. Well, actually, you have to assess what they're saying about racism on their own merits. Is what they're saying true or not? You know, were those players subject to horrific racism following the Euros? Well, yeah, they they absolutely were. Like other kids Marcus Rashford is advocating for, are they experiencing food poverty because of this government's policies? Well, yeah, they are. So assess the claim based on the truth, not on whether you deem them to be perfect enough to be worth listening to. I think you can also, I, you know, I agree with you, assess the, assess the claim on the merits of the, the truth. But I do also think that footballers do have uh, a bit of an authority because of where they come from. And, you know, people say, well, how, how dare they talk about social justice when they're so rich? Well, if you demand some, to, if, if to be listened to, you need to have been born poor and still be born poor and still be poor, sorry, then where's your voice? There's a reason that people from working class and ethnic minority backgrounds we hear from are the rich ones. There's a reason because the media only listens to the rich ones, right? You have to have been incredibly successful, incredibly successful in a very competitive field to have a voice in public life if you are from a working class background or black and brown, right? So, so it's, it's no coincidence that the people we hear from are incredibly successful and therefore incredibly wealthy in their field. So I just think it's if you are a sort of posh times journalist and you're saying you can only speak to these issues if you're still poor, well, then you're essentially saying, I'm not going to listen to anyone because how are they going to get a platform in the mainstream press? I just find it very, very frustrating. I do think there's something genuinely valuable about footballers in this country having political sway. Because yes, I don't, you know, idolize them. But as I say, there are so few industries where completely dominant are people from working class backgrounds and people from ethnic minority backgrounds that there's a reason people like this want to say, don't listen to footballers, because it's challenging to them to, to have this group of people with power and influence who aren't like them who they've managed to very successfully silence and outmaneuver and elbow out of every other sort of influential industry in the country. Let's go on to our next story. Britain's mainstream media has been deafeningly silent about Keir Starmer's attempts to stitch up MP selections. That is, until now. Michael Crick has been a political editor at both the BBC and Channel 4, and on the weekend he tweeted this. It's increasingly clear that Labour's selection processes are unfair and verge on corrupt. Some contenders get access to local membership lists long before others do, and so can start canvassing much sooner. Sometimes they have lists through being a councillor or party official. 
Now, what Michael Crick is talking about there has long been known by party activists. The people around Starmer will go to any length to get their candidates selected, including by blocking any left-wing contenders from even standing. So they block them off the long list or the short list. Yet, because it is principally the left who suffer, political journalists have largely stayed quiet. Very rare to see a tweet like this from a mainstream political journalist. And what's remarkable is that's even been the case when sitting MPs have been targeted. So far this year, the left-winger Sam Tarry has been deselected amid claims of foul play, and Ian Byrne was another left-winger who faced a tight reselection battle. On the latter, though, there is some good news. Byrne beat his challenger in a tight contest. He got 210 votes. His opponent got 198. The win was celebrated by left-wing MPs, including Zara Soltana. So she tweeted this. He's not only one of the best MPs in Parliament and a fierce champion of the working class, but he's also an amazing friend and comrade. I'm honestly so thrilled Ian Byrne has been reselected as the Labour MP for Liverpool West Derby. Ash, your thoughts on Michael Crick's tweet and Ian Byrne's reselection, which lots of people didn't see coming, actually. I mean, look, I'm glad at last someone in legacy media is talking about it. You've heard a little bit coming from Patrick Maguire at the Sunday Times as well. But if you remember what it was like between 2015 and 2019, whenever there was so much of a whisper of a reselection against a sitting MP, or if there was, you know, divisions within a Labour council between the left and the right, which is what happened in Haringey, it was presented as no less than Operation Barbarossa. I mean, it was really, you know, all over the newspapers. It was the top story of the Today program. And it was looked upon as though it was an act of exterminationist violence. It was it was totally disproportionate. And so when you contrast the visibility of the story compared to the silence of it now, I think that tells you everything that you need to know, which is that none of this was really about what are the appropriate democratic structures within the Labour Party, because in fact, the Labour Party's candidate selection is even less democratic, really, than comparable parties, certainly the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, and, you know, in, in many cases, less democratic than, than the Conservative Party even. It was really about how do we present the left as an illegitimate force in politics? And so that means when they're making gains, you present it as, you know, this this terrifying crimson wave washing over everything and drowning your children. And then when they're the victims of attempts to drum them out of the party, it's it's cloaked in in a in a veil of silence. And you know my position on this, Michael, which is that the actual democratic thing to do would be have open selections. So you have a reselection process ahead of every election. What that does is that allows fresh talent into the party. And it's also not the case that the left would always win those reselection battles. But I think that what you end up with is a system which is like a lot more fair, a lot more open to new people. And you don't have this huge power granted to the media in terms of whether they want to notice something or not. You know, you actually have a a level of accountability and grassroots democracy, which I think is just like self-evidently a good thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by by Michael Crick picking up on this. And also, you know, I, I, I don't think that it's a bad thing that 
Ian Byrne or whoever else has to go through a reselection process. I think it's a bad thing that it's only left-wing MPs like Ian Byrne who are having to go through a reselection process. And what do you think? I mean, there's been lots of comment because Ian Byrne got support from Angela Rayner, got support from Andy Burnham, but it was understood that the people around Keir Starmer wanted rid of him. So is this a sign that there is sort of like an alternative power base which is getting organized in the party? Should we make that much of it? I mean, obviously, this was quite a tight margin. It could have gone the other way. But it is the case that, you know, people around Keir Starmer wanted this guy gone. He managed to get Andy Burnham and Angela Rayner on side. And, you know, lo and behold, he has he has won. Is that interesting? Is that significant in any way? Yeah, I would say it's something to keep an eye on. I wouldn't make too much of it now and be like, you know, our king over the water, Angela Rayner, you know, come save us from the clutches of Keir Starmer. I would maybe say worth looking out for. It's also quite meaningful that Sam Terry appears to have he lost his reselection battle. I think that he might be contesting it legally, however, because of uh, allegations of, of voting irregularities. Um, and you know, Sam Terry, Angela Rayner, very close both politically and personally. So I think that after that, there there is a sense that if you're on the soft left, um, you want to be more assertive in defending MPs who are being targeted by the leadership in in that way. But I wouldn't make too much of it yet. I don't think it's strong enough to be considered an alternate power base just yet, but it's something to keep an eye on. I suppose, you know, it could, it, it could arise as an alternate power base if there were a crisis in sort of Keir Starmer's crew, but I mean, that doesn't seem like that's going to be happening anytime particularly soon. Straight on. Jason Lee is a former Premier League footballer. He played for Nottingham Forest over three seasons in the mid-90s and enjoyed a career as a player that spanned more than 20 years. But throughout his time at Nottingham Forest, Lee was regularly targeted by David Baddiel on his BBC comedy show, Fantasy Football League. Baddiel's sketches involved him donning blackface and wearing a pineapple on his head in a racist caricature of Lee and his dreadlocks. And they mocked his ability as a footballer despite his success. Now, we're not going to show the clips, but they involved things like Lee's white manager, played by Frank Skinner, pretending to drink juice out of the pineapple on Lee's head by sucking on one of his locks. The sketches led to fans chanting racist slurs at the player, both on the pitch and off. And until now, Badil had never personally apologised to Lee. On his podcast, Absolute Lee, Jason Lee said this about Badil's timing. I mean, my first question would be, you know, why has it taken 25 years for you to to reach out, really, and, and have this conversation? You know, man to man, I was always contactable. Um, people contact me all the time, whether it be through my clubs or through my organisation that I work with. I just felt that might have been prevalent at some stage for you to just reach out and say, you know what, what we're doing now, we could have had many, many years ago. The most straightforward explanation for why David Badil has reached out only now would make it all seem a little bit cynical. That's because 25 years after Mockingly, Badil is fronting a Channel 4 documentary about racism. Here's the advert. What do you think of when you hear the word Jew? We run Hollywood. We're lazy. We work too hard. We're a sort of hidden malevolent force. If we controlled things, wouldn't we have better PR? David Badil believes that in the current conversations about identity and racial justice, one minority is being left out. This might offend black people. This might offend gay people. This might offend disabled people. But they don't care whether it offends Jews. And asks why, even in progressive spaces, anti-Semitism is often seen as a lesser form of racism. For some reason, our pain isn't a real pain. I feel like we get an eye roll if we stand up for ourselves at all. 
That Channel 4 documentary is based on Badil's book, Jews Don't Count, which was released in 2019. In the book, Badil argues that anti-Jewish racism is ignored in ways that other kinds of racism aren't, and he suggests that his prior transgressions against Jason Lee shouldn't detract against his ability to make that particular argument. So in the books, this is from 2019, he writes, What the apologies make no difference to, so that's the apologies for doing blackface, is to the recurring presence of that photo on my Twitter timeline, particularly since I started speaking out publicly about anti-Semitism, whether it be anti-Semitism in general or on the left. In fact, it can seem that what the people demanding apologies from me want is not apologies. What they seem to want, really, is silence. They want me to shut up, particularly about anti-Semitism. As far as they are concerned, the photo of me as Jason Lee is a trump card that means I cannot speak about racism, even the racism that threatens me personally. It is suggestive, perhaps, of the hierarchy of racisms that because I was made up as Jason Lee, I, a Jew, have no right to speak out about my experience of anti-Jewish racism. I have offended against the more important racism. So, Badil was clear in 2019 he had apologised for doing blackface, but it's now apparent that the apology had not been made directly to Jason Lee. This is Lee speaking to the Times about his and Badil's recent conversation. So, he told the Times, this is Jason Lee, it was long overdue. I've never seen him before until he walked in. Timing is everything. He's back in the public eye again. Football tournaments are his moment. Free lines, football coming home is everywhere again. And he's doing his show. I understand fully he's used this situation mostly to benefit the documentary. To move forward, he needed to address this situation. Lee also spoke about the damage Badil's campaign caused him, saying this, I was violated on so many levels in those sketches. I felt I should be getting royalties. I was on that show so often. When I watched it with the other Forest players, it's, do you laugh along with it or show everyone you're upset? I was being bullied. I brush it off and say, yeah, whatever. I'd never exhibit any weakness. The environment that we're in, you can't exhibit any weakness. Nobody wanted to hear me say, I'm distraught, I'm devastated. Listen, I've got a game to play. I have to perform. They're relying on me. Now, the effects of Badil sketches have followed Lee for decades. One of them was the fan chant, he has a pineapple on his head. As recently as 2017, bookmakers Ladbrokes used the excuse of Lee's birthday to resurrect it. And during his career, Lee had tried to fight back against the abuse. In his recent interview with The Times, he described how he celebrated a goal he scored in 1996. He said, I held my hair up and that was me like, here I am, here are my locks, deal with it. I kept my locks for the duration of the season. I was proud of my locks. I tried to explain the cultural meaning behind that. Growing them, I felt empowered. I was always going to cut my hair at some stage. Out of stubbornness, I wasn't going to cut it when I was getting the abuse. Now, Badil and Skinner saw the celebration Lee is referring to there, and we're going to show you a clip of how they responded at the time. There's a reference to Frank Clark. At the beginning, he was the manager of Nottingham Forest. Frank Clark. Frank Clark has been slagging us off for having a go at Jason Lee. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fair, he called us middle-class white boys. Who Did he? Yeah, and yeah good for Frank. Yeah, Frank was, Frank was overjoyed to be called middle-class. <laughs> 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 hey? Things are looking up, aren't they? <laughs> well, middle-class white boys. Something like the white boy. I speak myself. No, no, the white Did he get you back on, on the telly the other day, sort of? Did this for this? Well... Funnily enough, oh. here's a clip of Jason's oh, story the other week. And if you watch him after, I think he might be trying to tell us something. Do you think Jason's got better recently? Because we think he has. Yeah. 
We think, we think, yeah. No, seriously, we get an interesting <laughs> distinction. We actually, uh, uh, we, uh, well, we you stopped beating your wife. It's one of those, isn't it? No, no, we, we wrote him a letter actually, didn't we? We did, yeah. We said, dear, dear Jason. Yeah. Um, Come on. Yeah. We come said, on. Come on. And he hasn't sent us one back. Apparently, he tried to, but he couldn't quite get it in the mailbox. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Ash, what do you make of all of this? Okay, I think I want to talk about it as two separate points. And I think the first thing that I want to talk about is the impact of the racist bullying that Jason Lee experienced. Because I think sometimes it can be hard to explain to people who aren't a racialized minority that when you are being denigrated or mocked for a feature of your appearance which marks you out as being a racialized minority it's not just like being called short or ugly or some other word which is insulting or disparaging but not racialized it feels like there is this thing and you're born with it and at once it's such a source of pride and cultural meaning and it ties you to your heritage and to your family and where you've come from and it's also something which marks you out as a second or even a third class citizen and it impacts your every interaction you have with the world around you. And so when someone mocks you for a feature like your skin color, or if you're black, a hairstyle which is, you know, unique to, to Afro-textured hair, it's a really horrible feeling because it's it's taking something which is you know a source of pride it's it's an opportunity to imbue yourself with a sense of pride about your cultural and your racial background and it's being turned as as a weapon against you and i think that's something which is really hard to explain to to people who don't experience that kind of racism that it gets under your skin it's humiliating it can sometimes feel that your own face and your own features are being warped before your very eyes every time you look in a mirror. And I've had to go through that a bit on social media. I haven't had to go through that on national television week in, week out, and then be surrounded by fans chanting at me about those things and having to perform, you know, physical feats in front of thousands and thousands of people I've never had to do that so I think for Jason Lee to have not only survived that period of his life but found a way to keep playing to stay in the game to continue in the game working on equality diversity and inclusion I think is a real testament to the strength and the resilience of the man and he shouldn't have had to be that strong and he shouldn't have had to be that resilient but I think it's it's important to say that it is a really extraordinary thing to do. And so I wanted to talk about that separately from from talking about David Baddiel and his role in all of this. Because I don't think that David Baddiel having a history of racism 
and this is a history of racism, disqualifies him from talking about anti-Semitism. I don't even think it disqualifies him from talking about racism. I feel quite comfortable to go, okay, let's tackle this on, on the truth of what you're saying. But for me, the specific history of David Baddiel's racism and the fact that it has never once impacted his career, he was able to don blackface in the 90s repeatedly and make fun of a black man's hair repeatedly. He's also got a long history of using other slurs, slurs which affect the Gypsy Roma traveler community. There was a one instance where he was on some kind of, of talk show. It might have been Frank Skinner's talk show or it might have been someone like that. And, you know, he, he was kind of talking quite disparagingly using, you know, the phrase Eastern European prostitute as as a synonym for trashy. You know, he's got that long history, but I don't think that disqualifies him from talking about racism. I think the fact that it never affected him, it invalidates his thesis that Islamophobia, anti-blackness, certain kinds of xenophobia enjoy a privileged status compared to anti-Semitism. Because his career has never been impacted by any of these things. In fact, there was so little impact of his own history of racism that he was then able to become an expert on racism, have a best-selling book and a documentary where he gets to opine at length about racism and talk not just about his experiences of anti-Semitic racism, but to say and I think that these other groups effectively have it so good. So I think that his argument is invalidated by his own career. He is a walking, breathing, talking rebuttal to the idea that anti-blackness is taken so seriously in progressive circles and anti-Semitism isn't. And that's not to say that anti-Semitism doesn't exist. It's not to say that anti-Semitism doesn't exist in some progressive circles. Of course it does. But anti-Semitism became the single biggest story about racism between 2017 and 2020. Also during a time of the Windrush crisis, also during a time of huge Islamophobia amongst the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, for that matter, as well as anti-blackness within the Labour Party as well. And it was anti-Semitism that dominated. And again, this isn't me going, oh, and that's because Jewish people have it so good. Actually, there are some really horrible things that come with that kind of visibility. There are also some really horrible things that come with anti-Semitism being understood primarily as a means to beat the left with. But it, it feels like being gaslit when you are a Muslim like me, or if you're a black person like Jason Lee, that David Baddiel of all people gets to go around and say, my experiences are being ignored. My experiences are being sidelined. Because actually, if you're black or if you're Muslim, you see that happening day in, day out. Because he sort of says, oh, people keep showing me this picture of me in blackface as if that means that I can't talk about anti-Semitism because I've done the worst form of racism. So that disqualifies me. He's sort of like say, even people holding me up for this is an example of the hierarchy of racism, which discriminates against Jewish people. It's like, you're not just talking about anti-Semitism. You're also posing yourself as an mm. expert on anti-black racism, because implicit to your argument is that anti-black racism is taken incredibly seriously by everyone. And as you say, if, if you have a history of being 
racist towards black people, then you you shouldn't really be the person who stands up and says, God, everyone takes anti-black racism so seriously, don't they? Because that's essentially the, the, arc, the narrative arc of his career. He was racist. It's, it's, there were no consequences for it. And it's like, isn't it amazing how seriously everyone takes anti-black racism? I mean, it's, it's a history of anti-black racism that didn't impact his career. And at the same time, you've, you know, you've got the example of Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, who wrote about black people calling them flag-waving pickaninnies with watermelon smiles, who wrote a frankly dreadful novel called 72 Virgins, which was replete with anti-Semitic and Islamophobic tropes. He became the fucking prime minister. So don't, don't, piss in my pocket and tell me it's raining and tell me that there is some unique blind spot which only impacts Jewish people in progressive circles and absolutely everybody else has it so good. You know, it's, it's, it's insulting. It's so insulting. And I've tried to be nice about this book and I've tried to be, you know, generous in my critiques of it, but it is also a racist book and it's a racist book not simply because it, it minimizes and I think in many cases erases the experiences of racism in progressive circles, which were endured by black people, by Muslim people, by people from the Gypsy, Roma and Traveller community. But there is this one really bizarre moment where he picks on a queer Arab poet called Omar Sakar, who sees this picture of Jesus, which is, you know, supposed to be how, how Jesus would have looked today. And he goes, oh, he looks like family. And David Bedil's argument is that because Omar Sakar is Arab and Muslim, and he says, oh, you know, Jesus looks like family, that that's inherently anti-Semitic, because what he must be really saying is he looks Arab and Muslim and therefore not Jewish. So the logic is that a Muslim feeling, a moment of affinity and identification with a Jewish figure like Jesus is inherently anti-Semitic because they're Muslim. What is that if not a racist position to hold? Yeah, and I mean, if you're watching this thing, why are you talking about this random guy who used to be like a 90s comedian and now wrote some very ill-informed book? It has become an incredibly dominant narrative, hence why there is a Channel 4 documentary with the title of his book as, as its title. And I mean, you've heard in the past couple of years, you know, Keir Starmer has said, oh, I, I learned so much about racism from reading David Baddiel's Jews Don't Count book. So. This idea has somehow, embarrassingly, become completely hegemonic in sort of British political discourse. And I think it's, it's bizarre. It's embarrassing, frankly. Final story of the evening. The World Cup is full of great rivalries. Brazil and Argentina, England and Germany, or Italy and France. But now we have a new one. David Beckham and comedian Joe Lysett. The row started after David Beckham signed a multi-million dollar deal to be an ambassador for Qatar during the World Cup. Here he is glossily promoting the Gulf nation, which has some of the most punishing anti-LGBT laws in the world. It's another beautiful day here in Qatar. Welcome to Doha, David. Beautiful, huh? This will go down as one of my favorite mornings. People in Qatar are very proud of their culture. <laughs> the modern and traditional fused to create something really special. It's one of the best spice markets that I've ever been to. 
this is perfection for me. Qatar really is an incredible place to spend a few days on a stopover. I cannot wait to bring my children back. Let's hope none of your children are gay, David. Otherwise, it won't necessarily be the most enjoyable holiday for you all. That Beckham deal led comedian Joe Lysett to post this ultimatum to social media. You were the first premiership footballer to do shoots with gay magazines like Attitude, to speak openly about your gay fans, and you married a Spice Girl, which is the gayest thing a human being can do. But now it's 2022, and you've signed a reported £10 million deal with Qatar to be their ambassador during the FIFA World Cup. Qatar was voted as one of the worst places in the world to be gay. Homosexuality is illegal, punishable by imprisonment, and if you're Muslim, possibly even death. You've always talked about the power of football as a force for good, which suggests to me that you've never seen West Brom. But generally, I agree. So with that in mind, I'm giving you a choice. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money, that's a grand for every million you're reportedly getting, to charities that support queer people in football. However, if you do not, at midday next Sunday, I will throw this money into a shredder just before the opening ceremony of the World Cup and stream it live on a website I've registered called BendersLikeBeckham.com. Not just the money, but also your status as a gay icon will be shredded. You'll be forcing me to commit a crime. Although even then, I reckon I'll get off more likely than I would if I got caught whacking off a lad in Doha. After that, a countdown began, and a week later, the World Cup opened, and with still no word from Beckham, this happened. So if you're listening to the podcast, what you saw there was Joe Lysett throwing wads of cash into a shredder and it coming out the other side. Predictably, minds were completely lost across the political spectrum. This is GB News' Adam Brooks. What a complete wanker. Shredding £10,000 to try and prove a point about David Beckham. Families can't feed their children, pay their bills and worrying about the future. And Joe Lysett thinks that this stunt is in any way positive tosser. We have also got a tweet from Paul Embury shredding £10,000 on film in the middle of a cost of living crisis and when people are losing sleep over how to feed their kids and pay their bills ain't quite the popular stunt you think it is, Joe Lysett. Just one day later, Lysett posted this. This is my final message to David Beckham. It's me, that prick who shredded loads of money in a cost of living crisis. So, where were we? I told you I was going to destroy £10,000 if you didn't end your relationship with Qatar before the first day of the World Cup. And then, when you didn't end your relationship, or even respond in any way, I streamed myself dropping 10 k into a shredder. Or did I? I haven't quite told you the whole truth. Because the truth is, the money that went into the shredder was real, but the money that came out was fake. I would never destroy real money. I would never be so irresponsible. In fact, the 10 grand had already been donated to LGBTQ plus charities before I even pressed send on the initial tweet last week. I never expected to hear from you. It was an empty threat designed to get people talking. In many ways, it was like your deal with Qatar, David. Total bullshit from the start. I'm not even queer. Only joking. There is one thing I'll shred. This is your Attitude magazine cover from June 2002, the first ever cover of a gay magazine with a Premier League footballer on it. I asked Attitude if I could shred it, and they were more than happy to oblige. (laughs) 
definitely been quite a lot, this, hasn't it? Right, I'm off down the gay village to have a few pints. Now, Ash, I want your take on this. I mean, I'm not sure how, how big a rival we can say this, and I don't think David Beckham has really participated. But is this a stunt that has, has worked well? Well, I think that is a really effective attention-grabbing stunt. Almost the same way uh, Just Stop Oil chucking soup at Van Gogh is a really effective attention-grabbing stunt. It's something which is seen as so offensive in a way that people can't help but talk about it and debate the morality of doing this thing that they find offensive versus the much greater wrong being done, whether that's accepting money from a homophobic regime or, you know, climate change. So I think it succeeds on on that basis. But I think for me, the questions that I have over Lysette's stunt and the Just Stop Oil stunt is kind of the same one, which is, are we talking about the thing you want us to talk about? Are we talking about the way in which Qatar uh, systematically targets LGBT people? And that's not just in terms of, you know, horrifically harsh punishments, prison sentences, or even, even acts of violence, but also using blackmail as a form of getting people to inform on one another. It's, it's a way of enforcing the regime's authority and powers of surveillance as well. Are we actually talking about that? Or are we centering two British celebrities and debating that? You know, I'm not I'm not saying that like um what Lysette's done is is wrong by any stretch of the imagination, but I wonder if it captured our attention and then kind of pushed the wrong thing to the front of our field of vision. I don't know. I'm interested in what you think. I think a bit of both. I mean, I think I. I mean, I think this is pro- more than a just stop oil protest. I think this one is. You know, I think most people just probably find it quite uncontroversial what he did, considering it wasn't real money. Like in a way, he had his cake and ate it because he's done something controversial enough to get attention, and then rolled back from it after and said, "Oh, that thing you're annoyed about, I didn't actually do." Now he gets to do that in a way that just stop oil don't because he's famous, and you mm. can. You know, if you're just an ordinary man and woman on the street then you have to do something a bit more controversial to get attention. He's famous, so he can get away with with doing this. I do think he has sort of put attention on LGBT people in, in Qatar, even if it's, you know, it's, it's, he's not laying out their stories. But I do think that things such as this will make FIFA more wary about, or, or any sporting body for that matter, sort of putting sporting events in countries where they have very, very vicious, abusive, homophobic laws. And that could feed into some policy change. I mean, I don't think, I don't see this, this is not really my model of change for how to win LGBT rights in across the world. But I mean, if you're a comedian, it seems like one of the more effective things you can do to have some sway. I would say I am pro. Especially I hadn't quite realised that I, I was a bit more sitting on the fence when I thought that David Beckham was just going and doing commentary or whatever. Because mm. I, I, I feel it is a bit much to ask people, you know, not to do their jobs, potentially. But this isn't David Beckham doing his job. This is just David Beckham taking cash literally to shill for Qatar. So it's like there, there's literally no defense whatsoever for what David Beckham is doing. So I think if, if Joe Lysett has effectively owned him on that, then I'm all for it. We're going to wrap up there. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much for having me. And we will be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.